It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. We were discouraged with all the negativity in the world and decided to focus on finding some good out there. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast with me, Teresa. And me, Amy. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Amy, I'm curious. Best part of last week? Worst part of last week? Okay, best part is yesterday Lucy picked her dorm at the University oh, of Oregon. She's that's exciting. In Bar- Barnhart Hall, which I was just happy that she's kind of, she was so anxious about, it, you know, two months ago. And now she's happy and excited and texting her roommate. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, really just happy to see that in her because she's shy yeah. and you know it's a big step. it's a big step yeah. so i'm just i just love watching that and seeing the excitement, and seeing the excitement. Yeah. so that was oh, my worst part i think i told you the story about joe's where i was taking yeah. ellie to get some dinner joe's burgers and there's this inner change between this older man and younger woman and foul language and over i don't even know what and it just it, it came into the restaurant and then I mean, the whole thing and everyone, like, you know. Just all that negative energy. Negative feeding energy. Feeding off of each other. And people trigger and she, just instantly. Yeah, and she ended up telling him off. And then he laughed or what he, out in front of the Joes. And then everyone's clapping. And I was like, I'm not sure if clapping is, because we're just we're just doing negative to negative. Yeah, exactly. Even Continuing though, the. It's fine to stand up for something, yeah. but do we have to use profanity? Yeah, especially, it's one thing we're. We're just the two people, but right. that people were clapping. Yeah. It's not reality TV. No, but I felt like <laughs> yeah. it. Right here in Beaverton. Well, I can see why that would be the negative. This is a story my husband found on Twitter on Father's Day. Oh. And he saved it to his phone because he was moved by the story. A guy named David Klein, who goes by at D-K-L-I-N-E, L-I on Twitter, posted a story about his father who had died a few years earlier. When he was nine on Father's Day, his dad told him to hop in the car. They drove to an elementary school, went in, even though it was 11 on a Sunday. They went to the gym, and there were about 30 people, men and women, all adults there. His dad told him to take a seat. Dave knew his father attended a lot of meetings and thought that's what his dad does for work, go to meetings. He was surprised when his dad went up to the front of all of these people. When he stood there, everyone went quiet. He was shocked that all these people were there to listen to his dad. His dad, who was also named David, said, My name is Dave, and I am an alcoholic. For young Dave, this was the first he had ever heard this. His father went on to talk about his life, a story that you know, younger Dave had never heard before. Young Dave didn't know that his father grew up in an abusive home where he was sometimes badly beaten or that he started drinking as a teen and would steal beer from his parents and would sometimes disappear for days or that he used a forged birth certificate to join the military even though he was underage and that he went to war rather than endure the abuse that he had at home. When Dave's father was done speaking, everyone in the room stood to shake his hand. Dave thought that his dad was a celebrity. He later learned that his dad was 10 years sober that day, which is considered a huge accomplishment and an important milestone in long-term alcohol recovery. His dad was an inspiration to the people in that meeting. 
It wasn't until later that Dave really understood the gift that his father had given him that day. It was a gift 10 years in the making. When he learned he was going to be a father, Dave's dad made a vow to stop drinking and started his first AA meeting. As David Klein put it in his post, he was determined that I would not grow up as he had, that my normal would be a safe and sober normal, that his duty as a parent was to do better. His gift to me was a broken chain. Like I said earlier, David's father died a few years ago. His dad had asked for a small send-off and wanted to keep things quiet and low-key. David said that despite his father's wishes, hundreds of strangers disagreed. Mm. For hours, people who were complete strangers to David's family spoke about the impact his father had made on them. Whether it was words of encouragement, timely visits when they needed help, or as Dave put it, the occasional kick in the ass... Dave's father quietly and consistently made a difference in the lives around him, not to mention his son's life. Many of the people who spoke at his dad's memorial shared a line, which I can only assume is something shared in AA, but I think can make a difference in anyone's life. Choose your tomorrow, but start today. I just love that. Yeah. What a great gift. This is episode 90. And we're talking about Saliga Jaoud. In episode 83, we talked about her husband, John Baptiste, who my mother-in-law, Cece, yes. so cutely recommended him. Good recommendation. For our, for our podcast. He's an incredible Grammy-winning musician, artist, band leader for Stephen Colbert Show. Now, is he still the band leader? Yep. I've, okay. Still the band leader. A gal in class that she's headed to New York this week, oh, and they cool. have tickets to the Colbert Show, oh, which I'm very jealous fun. of. Fun. That's cool. Maybe she'll get his autograph. Yeah, that would be really Both cool. Of them. Yeah. Um, and he's truly an awesome musical artist and human. But as I was researching him, I learned about his wife, Salika. She just recently published a book called Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted. Although difficult in parts, it's truly an awesome read. I fell in love with her and her story. It gives this up-close personal account of a brutal battle with leukemia. Mm. And I, I know cancer is a tough topic. And it's all over. It's yeah. all over. Yeah. She talks about being how being sick, how it impacted her relationships with her family and friends. You know, not only losing friends to the disease, losing her identity along the way, and ultimately being cancer-free and then f- trying to figure out how she would start over to find the person she wanted to become. Salika, which means most beautiful woman in Arabic, was born July 5th, 1988 in New York. That's a beautiful name. It is a beautiful name. Her mom, Anne, is Swiss, and her dad, Hedy, is Tunisian, um, and they met in New York City. Salika has a younger brother, Adam. Their family traveled around the world, France, Switzerland, Tunisia, until she was about 10, and then they settled in Saratoga Springs, New York. Her mom is a painter, and her dad is a professor at Skidmore, a small liberal arts college in Saratoga Springs. In middle school, she picked up the double bass, and she was just drawn to the size and shape of it. Wow. Obviously talented, <laughs> she got a scholarship to attend Juilliard pre-college program. Mm. Then she was awarded a full-ride scholarship to Princeton University in New Jersey. So she's definitely the full package, yeah, smart, gifted. talented yeah. musician, and beautiful. And her illness began with an itch, literally. It was during her last semester of college, she got this rash all over her body. It looked like little pinpricks. And she described this itch so unbearable that she'd be constantly itching her arms and legs, even in class, like under the Hmm. desk. Awake, asleep, she itched her body. 
Her constant scratching left her covered in bloody sores. It got so bad she'd sneak down the hall to the communal shower so no one would see her ravaged Mm. body. Salika tried all sorts of creams, bitter tea, anxiety meds, you know, to to no avail. Besides the itching, she was tired all the time, taking, you know, two six-hour naps a day. She drank two six-hour naps. Yeah. But she's, you know, college student, so she'd probably be up a lot. So she was... Drank a lot of coffee. She even got some Adderall from a friend that she dated briefly. You know, her friends complained of being tired, so she thought, oh, it's just that final push. After she graduated, she got an internship at the Center of Constitutional Rights, which sounded super cool. You know, what a cool internship. Mm -hmm, Opportunity. Yeah. But after being late and eventually not showing up at all, it ended because she just wasn't showing up. And she was hating who she was becoming. Uh, still, she's wondering, is this all in her mind? Like, she's not even sure. Am well, she I not sick? showing up because she's so tired? She's so tired. She's yeah, so tired. So she's hating who she was and then still wondering, is this really happening? Like, am I sick or is there something yeah. going on? So she decided to have a fresh start. She's, you know, with language skills, she was fluent in French and she knew some Arabic. So she landed a job as a paralegal in Paris for an American law firm. And it's kind of ironic how this all worked out. As she's leaving, she she meets this young man in a taxi ride, Will. And they, you know, kind of dated for a couple of days. And then she's off to Paris. And she's pretty smitten. They keep in touch. And then he surprises her and visits her. And then he eventually stays. And, you know, they fall mm. in love. And then after months of living abroad, she's trying to keep up with these all-nighters at the law firm, the new relationship. I mean, she's still ill. She camouflages her body with... Like oh, so she still tights. has all the yeah. sores. So she's oh, wearing okay. black tights, long sleeves. As months pass, her health declined, and eventually she's collapsing and ending up at an American hospital in Paris. Her red blood cell count had dropped significantly, so she flew back to the States to seek medical care. Her parents were shocked to see her not recognizing her. I uh, wonder why they didn't recognize her. She, uh, she looked so tired, mm. and I think they even thought maybe she was on drugs. Mm. You know, they're not mm-hmm. sure what... Going What's on going on with either. No. After a week of tests, the doctor suggested a precautionary biopsy, which is pretty painful, taking bone marrow cells. She talks about the huge needle, mm-hmm. 10 inches long. And then after the life-altering diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia, a rare blood disorder called myelotus plastic syndrome, which affects mainly affects people over 60. Hmm. So Salika writes that this diagnosis, you know, kind of had this irreparable fracture, the life before and the life after. I get that. You know? Yeah, I totally get that. The doctors in Saratoga Springs said leukemia was too advanced to treat locally, so they suggested she go to Manhattan for treatment. And just six days after the diagnosis, she learns, you know, she not only needs chemo, but eventually will need a bone marrow transplant, which is dangerous and complicated mm-hmm. procedure with a high mortality oh. rate. She was given a 35% survival rate. Oh, I don't like that. Fortunately, her brother was a match, which is pretty awesome. I guess only 25% of the time family members are matches. Really? I would think that'd be much higher. Yeah. Salika was not only devastated by the diagnosis, but also she was concerned about how the chemo would impact her future fertility. So not ready to be a mom at 22 yeah. by any means, but... So prior to chemo, she went to an infertility clinic. Her medical team helped her get a grant to cover costs because usually insurance doesn't cover and Mm -hmm. it can be upward to $25,000. Wow. 
the fertility clinic prescribed gonadotropin, a hormone that stimulates the ovaries to produce more eggs. Mm. Um, and then it's administrated by injection. And it's a lot to consider for a young couple. Yeah. I mean, she debated about creating embryos, which would mean sperm, and then freezing her eggs. And that's a lot of pressure. She decided just to freeze her eggs. She started her treatment at Mount Sinai Hospital, and this would be the beginning of a long, grueling chemo treatment, bone marrow transplant. And I, as as this is going, I really appreciate her unfiltered comments about she's feeling resentful towards her boyfriend, Will, mm. even though he's by her side, but he's out there living in the world. Mm-hmm. He's living his best life. He's living now. his best life. He's by her side. And they've Supported. only been dating for a couple months. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's a lot for him. It's a lot for him. And, you know, she's like frustrated because she's stuck in this bed or a bubble, as she calls mm. it, which I think would be really hard. Yeah. And then I think she felt guilty about how it, the illness affected her family and friends. And so during this period, Silica became understandably very depressed. Absolutely understandable. And a social worker suggested she find a hobby, one that she could do from her hospital bed. So she decided to do a 100-day project. The idea was that her family, Will, and Sulika would carve out a few minutes each day on a creative project, you know, for the next 100 days. And I love the idea of that committing to an intentional activity. Um, I think we should figure out something to do. do. I I love this. I know. Will was going to do short videos from the outside, from everything to the weather, to the quality of pizza and the hospital cafeteria her mother decided on painting one small hand piece of a ceramic tile each morning Mm. and then she'd assemble she eventually assembled it into these mosaic tiles and called it Solika's shield oh that's adorable um her father wrote down 101 memories he decided to go one day one more uh memories that he printed in a bound book of his childhood and Solika decided to return to daily journaling and uh, doing a blog, mm-hmm. drawing an inspiration from her favorite book, The Diary of uh, Frida Kahlo. She reimagined her survival as this creative act. She organized her space like Frida, who was recovering while recovering from a horrible accident, painted from her hospital bed. Her blog went live early 2012, and she had low expectations for readership. She thought it'd be family, friends, college professors just reading how it. how we thought the podcast yeah, would Yeah, just be. exactly. <laughs> uh, she was surprised the next day the Huffington Post featured her blog entry, which read, Good afternoon, you have cancer. Her entry talked about the enduring boredom, you know, and, mm-hmm. and despair, isolation of being sick, and confined to a bed for an indeterminate length of time and just the unknown the unknown you're going through all this and you still you don't don't know know. yeah and it resonated with folks within hours of her blog she had a thousand views and then her next entry was more tongue-in-cheek it she said 10 things not to say to a cancer patient Mm. she received to read that one yeah you know i had quite a few that i need to check to see if they're on that list she received tons of letters like all over the country, one from a young man named Little GQ, who wanted uh, her to know that her story touched him, as he put it, in a death row convict's heart. He related to her feeling of waiting, too. He was stuck waiting for news of his face, sitting on death row. The goal of the 100-day project was to reach the examination day, which is the first major benchmark for evaluating a patient's recovery mm-hmm. from transplant. Mm-hmm. She spent her days and nights lying in this, you know, 45-degree angle to prevent her lungs from filling up with fluids. And she talks about how she felt claustrophobic, but she would think of little GQ's letter 
and his words kept her company during the long stay in the transplant unit. She received emails from all kinds of people who had been sick, and these letters kept her going. After her transplant, to be on the safe side, her medical team suggested Salika undergo nine rounds of chemo once a month for five days straight, then three weeks off, which ended up, she did that twice, so 18 months of chemo. It took a toll on her relationship with Will, and Salika was feeling more like a patient than Will's girlfriend. She hated that she needed him mm-hmm. so much. And, you know, it's difficult. They're both young, and he's trying to start a career. He's turned down promotions. He turned down opportunities to care for her. Which he was, was probably hurt, hard for, for her, her to, to see. Yeah. You know, it's this, I mean, it's... He's young and has his whole life ahead yeah, of him. Yeah, I think it was... You know, He'd work all day and then go either to the hospital or for a short, but they lived in uh, an apartment. And he'd either come home from work and care for her or care for her like at lunch. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, you know, young. So eventually the relationship ended. So after three and a half years, this is her battle, was Salika was officially done with cancer. So she's like, now what? She writes, her illness humbled her and humiliated her. You know, as she got... As she grew sicker, she watched her old self disappear. And she's now cancer-free, no will. She lost some dear friends to the disease. And um, she also wrote that she felt more comfortable in a hospital than out in the world. I wonder if that's because she that's where she, she had was. been. So, she had been, yeah. yeah. Um, so reflecting on Susan Sontag's essay, Illness as a Metaphor, she wrote, Everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of well and in the kingdom of sick. So as a part of moving toward the kingdom of well and wanting to be a normal 26-year-old, she invites an old band camp friend, John Baptiste, there he is, to join her to watch a friend who's a singer, Stacy, perform. So she's kind of starting just to see him as a friend. And she's also visiting a family cabin in Vermont where she's enjoying solitude and someone tra- taught her to drive. She didn't know how to drive. So oh. she's like, you know, almost 26. Doesn't know how to drive. So during one of her visits to the cabin, as she's trying to kind of reform where yeah. she's at, she looks through these letters that she'd received from people while in the hospital. Um, and after sifting through, you know, a bunch of them, she picked 24 that stood out to her. And she sent emails asking if they'd be willing to meet up. And I, I've talked about bravery. Yeah. After getting her driver's license, and she borrows her friend Subaru, she embarks on a 15,000-mile road wow. trip with her mini schnauzer, Oscar. Aww. Her medical team gave her approval for 100 days, which I think is kind of ironic because it's really another 100-day mm-hmm. project. She visited Ned, who's a teacher at an all-girls school in Connecticut. Ned, also a cancer survivor, had sent Sulik an email about transitioning out of treatment and how hard it was going to be. Salika was irritated when she got the email at the time because she was still in treatment. But now she's like, she got it. She wanted to talk to him about how to move forward. Yeah. And what's so interesting about that, I just had a checkup. And the nurse practitioner that was helping me, she is a Hodgkin's cancer survivor. So it's kind of funny that you do just feel this connection. So I'm sure that's what Ned was feeling like her, even though she wasn't quite ready. She wasn't ready for that. But I'm glad she finally... Was. Was. Yeah. And yeah. So Ned um, invited Salika to talk about her road trip and her cancer journey with his students. And I think that was kind of a nerve wracking situation because, you know, talking to these young people. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, Ned and Salika talked about their experiences, the post traumatic stress, the worry that, you know, cancer may return. 
And they both realize they don't have it figured out, but at least they're not alone. And Ned suggests that poetry is a way of processing. He experiences, his experiences are embedded in what he reads and language captures Mm -hmm. it um, for him. And he gave Salika an envelope of poems. So on this journey, she's camping, sometimes staying in a motel, depending on her health, because she occasionally caught a cold Mm -hmm. because of her compromised immune system. She met some really cool people on the road, too. Her travels took her across to the West Coast, to Ojai, California, where she visited a woman, Catherine, who lost her son, Brooke, to suicide. Catherine wrote uh, Salika during the aftermath of her son's suicide. Catherine said the letter writing was a practice inspired by her son, who Hmm. loved writing letters. He once wrote a letter to a scientist telling him how much he appreciated his research. And I guess the recipient was so impressed, they offered Brooke a job. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You don't hear about that. I often, know. Especially not with young people. With young people, exactly. Catherine said her family calls writing letters to of gratitude to strangers doing a brook. Oh. Which I love that idea of, of honoring someone's life, yeah. whatever that may with be. With a tribute. With like their that. passion. But I'm only highlighting a few of Salika's visits. But her last one was to Little GQ, a prisoner in Livingston, Texas, on death row. He wrote to her about all kinds of things, his hobbies, the books that are like that he loved, but they are, uh, you know, someone in solitary confinement, prisoners, it's their best friend, you know. And he had a cheerful tone to his letters, regardless of his circumstances. Uh, To connect with them, she had to create an online account through a company that allows you to buy digital stamps, to send letters electronically to inmates anywhere in the Hmm. country. So it was a complicated process. process She was Granted a special visit, which consists of two four-hour visits over a course of two days, which is usually reserved to, like, family members or close friends, admittedly, she felt overwhelmed. Like, that's a long time to talk to anyone, let alone mm-hmm. a stranger. I, I totally give her credit. Yeah. But they they talk about life, anecdotes, memories. He talked about his family. And his mom was the first person to pull a gun on him. Mm. I mean, so he comes from violence. He said he wanted to be in a gang as early as kindergarten. Wow. So he was on so death row. cycles. Yes, yeah, a cycle yeah, of violence. Yeah. He, he was on death row for murder. And when she came back the next day, little GQ was like shocked that she returned. <laughs> he but probably never had experienced that friendship like that. that. Yeah, that yeah. kind of connection. They talked some more. Although, you know, little GQ has never been sick, yet he understood, you know, what it was like to feel like stuck in purgatory. Mm-hmm. Awaiting the news of your fate, similar to the illness, that that is what prompted him to write her. It just really blew me away that she drove, you know, and visited him. And I just love her journey to find herself and join the kingdom of well was really rooted in human connection. I can understand why her New York Times blog, Life Interrupted, earned an Emmy Award. It resonated with so many people beyond those dealing with serious illness. I think the idea of life interruption, uh, whether it be serious illness, loss of a friend or family member, incarceration, or let's even say the pandemic, I mean, life is altered in some way, and the key is figuring out the path forward. Absolutely. Salika so served on Barack Obama's president's cancer panel, and her advocacy work, reporting and speaking, has been featured in the United Nations and on TED Talks. Oh, I'm going to have to look her up on TED Talks. Yeah. I love TED Talks. And as we talked in earlier episodes, she married her longtime boyfriend, John Baptiste, this past February. In November, sadly, she learned that her cancer had returned. And I read she had another bone marrow transplant is hopeful. I saw this post that just kind of jumped out at me on Instagram where she said, the darkness will 
overtake you, but just turn on the light, focus on the light, and hold on to the light. I just love her perspective there. She has a newsletter, which I prescribe to the Isolation Journals, which updates her health um, journey, but it also includes this writing prompt inspired by her or somebody else. And it's all sorts of things. It could be, you know, like... a famous author and just something to write mm-hmm. about or it could be something in your day just kind of started, started. yeah yeah it's just but it's, it's the isolation journals that's yeah. cool and then on instagram i saw her latest 100 day project is watercolor painting they're beautiful they're you know some of them are depicting her in the ocean or in a tub receiving chemo with these monkeys they're really Aww. brightly colored uh-huh. and really there's some whimsy mm-hmm. in this in the, hmm. they're just really really pretty cool I love this woman's bravery and creative spirit and how she uses her voice to advocate for those living with illness and really other forms of life interrupting adversity. Yes, I totally understand why you would, you'd love her. I hope my story invites people to reflect on the in-between moments in their own life, to think differently about them, to sit with them, to interrogate them. Skolika Jayud. In episode 87, we talked about Naya Woods, a local woman who launched Portland's first Black Literacy Festival, Freedom Festival, and she kind of timed it with uh, Juneteenth, mm-hmm. the celebration of emancipation from slavery. The festival held a book drive to collect books for a nonprofit, Portland Books to Prisoners. And I was, oh. Yeah, I was kind of curious about it, so I did a little digging and looked into it. And it turns out Portland Books to Prisoners is one of many programs offered by a larger Portland nonprofit. Education Without Borders. Yeah, it's pretty cool. EWB, I'm just going to shorten that, uh, Education Without Borders, mission is to improve people's lives through educational projects that share knowledge and resources to find solutions to some of the world's most urgent problems like literacy, disease, poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia, environmental destruction, and war. So they have all these different outreach and programs. Yeah. So EWB acts as an umbrella organization for like educators and students to do research and so they can teach their local communities and abroad. They create new innovative educational programs tailored to the communities, which is really awesome. But so Portland Books to Prisoners is an all-volunteer collective. They're working to distribute books free of charge to prisoners. They are dedicated to offering books to people behind bars, the opportunity for, you know, self-empowerment, education, entertainment, you know, that reading mm-hmm. provides. I wonder if they read, though, because they, they are pretty strict about what's in well, the that's, prison. So that's what they if- said. I mean, they said that. So they're, you know, they send the literature actually across to the volunteers no they send the literature to the prisoners you know those incarcerated across mm-hmm. the nation but they did say that that's i mean that's the hold up is the regulations yeah. and why a lot of family members can't send right. things just yeah and so they're they're able to offer that service it sounds like i've been in prison by knowing that but i read that yeah. librarian behind bars right book and she you know always had to go through they were very strict about they're very they... strict yeah so they do their best once they get the request to fulfill it it's kind of it's really sad there's over two million people incarcerated you know here mm. in uh the state and federal prisons and two-thirds of them are people of color this it's just it's just, it's just you know crazy but there's a couple ways to help. So I, I thought this was really cool. You can volunteer to open letters and match requests mm-hmm. with the books, as well as you can donate gently used, you know, paperbacks. 
they do really don't like hardbacks. It's expensive to, mm-hmm. to mail. To ship. And, of course, you can do monetary donations. But I just love this. I think it'd be fun to do a book drive mm-hmm. sometime. Let's put that on the calendar. Yeah. The world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. Ernest Hemingway. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.